This episode is brought to you by Audible, where you can get a free audiobook of your choice and support the show by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash best. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Jimmy Dore Show, Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolf, Redacted Tonight with Comedian Lee Camp, The Tom Hartman Program, Chris Hedges, Majority Villain, Radio Dispatch, The Majority Report, and The Young Turks. I don't know if you know, but uh, war is a racket. Huh? I didn't make that up. That was made up by a guy named General Smedley, who was, when he died, the most decorated veteran in America. He wrote a book in the 1930s after he had served in World War I and what have you. And it was called War is a Racket. And I just want to read one paragraph from that book. War is a racket. It always has been. It is possibly the oldest, easily the most profitable, surely the most vicious, it is the only one international in scope. It is the only one in which the profits are reckoned in dollars and the losses in lives. A racket is best described, I believe, as something that is not what it seems to the majority of people. Only a small inside group knows what it is about. It is conducted for the benefit of a very few at the expense of very many. Out of war, a few people make huge profits. I'm now going to rely on the example of the United States, since it is more active militarily uh, around the world than any other country, uh, something that has been true for a long time, uh, and spends a, a wild amount of, of money. And I'm going to take this, today's analysis, uh, with my cap off to the Financial Times, a very important newspaper for all economists. Uh, the issue of December 14th was devoted to military spending in the United States and particularly to the costs of the wars in Afghanistan and the wars uh, in Iraq. So let's go. The estimates, these are very hard to come by. The United States government has been very leery and hesitant to provide uh, reliable estimates which is one of the reasons why the estimates vary a bit. The Financial Times estimates are conservative. I've seen estimates as high as uh, $4 trillion as the cost over the last 10 or 15 years of the American military activities. The Financial Times, a little more circumspect, they price the cost of the Afghanistan war as to date $1 trillion and the cost of the Iraq war at 1.7 trillion dollars. In other words, the two wars together are pushing 3 trillion. And they point out, as all efforts to calculate the cost of war have to do, that these are preliminary estimates because one of the biggest expenses of the war is going to play itself out over the next 20 and 30 years. I'm talking about all of the returning military personnel who are coming back with 
traumatic physical injuries, traumatic mental injuries, and who will require vast amounts of support in the form of pensions, medical care, uh, veteran administration services, veteran administration hospitals, and so on. We know that it will be in the hundreds of billions of dollars. We just don't know how much. We can't at this point. And we don't really know for how long these will uh, ramify. So we're talking vast amounts of money. But let's go back just to the Afghanistan war. It is the longest war in American history. And remember, I'm only looking at the economics of these things. I'm not here to talk about the political, moral, ethical. Those are very important. That's not what this program focuses on. The longest war in the United States, now costing uh, $1 trillion. Here's some interesting facts about that. If you adjust for prices, we're spending more on that war than we spent on the Marshall Plan after World War II, says the Financial Times. They did the calculation. One trillion dollars. Give you an idea of what that might mean in the United States. One trillion dollars is about, currently, the total student debt of the United States. In other words, had the United States made a different decision not to fight a war in Afghanistan starting shortly after 9-11. That's why it's 13 years old, and that's why it's the longest war in the United States' history. If we had decided not to do that, we could go to the hundreds of thousands of American students now deciding not to go on with their education because they've got too many debts, deciding not to get married, not to have children, not to go to the, the, the field of study that they are passionately interested in, where they would be wonderfully creative, but instead to take a job quickly because of all these debts. We could have gone to that enormous swath of our citizenry and said to them, Jubilee, no debts, canceled. The government of the United States as the representative of the people of the United States, says to the young people who are studying, we want your creativity, we want your passion, we want to help, we want to have a more educated society, and we think that's more important than fighting a war in Afghanistan. A war that, in almost every country on earth, and indeed a majority of Americans say the same, we should never have entered in the first place. So there's no notion that this was a good idea that is dominant. There's no notion that the United States has won. The number of people who believe that is a very small minority. But we're looking at money spent that is staggering. It reminds me of the old remark that is as valid today as it ever was. That the issue war raises is always Guns or butter. The money you spend on guns is not available to spend on butter. The money spent on Afghanistan, a trillion and counting, 
and Iraq, 1.7 trillion and counting, was money not made available to deal with poverty, to deal with student indebtedness, to deal with a broken infrastructure, to deal with re-equipping our enterprises so they could compete in a world economy. Lots of things that we could list, that every one of you listening or watching could list, that you might prefer to see that kind of money spent on. Because those are sums that could transform a society. That's why I gave the example of student debt. But instead, we had war. And why? Because we've made it a taboo in the United States to question it. The government budget, like it did this last couple of weeks, goes through. The military is barely discussed. We can't. We can't question it. We can't debate it. The details, yes, but not the basic idea, not these trillions. The money flows, guns it is, but we can't afford food stamps and we can't afford helping our students in debt and we can't afford and we can't afford, but we can afford those wars. Think about it. It is an elephant in the room. And when you have that big an elephant... And when you say, hey, get out so we can communicate, the elephant kicks back and says, no, I'm a big elephant. I can push you out of the room. The military don't want to be constrained. And all the companies that make money off of them don't want to be constrained. And all the states that get money because they have a military base, they don't want to. So we have in the, spread across the United States the structure, what President Eisenhower once called the military-industrial complex, to hold on. But it's not rational for this society. And it's long overdue to open up a real discussion about the real elephant right in the middle of our room. The military industrial complex running amok in the east and west. They don't give a damn about you, army. Oh no, with ideology protecting the prophets, promoting our proliferation as the best. But everyone should see this is hypocrisy. Speaking of death, we switch to Lockheed Martin. Their CEO is Marilyn Houston, the 21st most powerful woman in the world, according to Forbes. She was 22nd last year, but she beat Beyonce in a pay-per-view bare-knuckle fist fight. That was awesome! <laughs> anyway, as you probably know, Lockheed Martin is a weapons manufacturer, building devices that allow us to murder each other in large enough numbers that it's still entertaining. Houston was caught on tape reassuring investors that despite the Iran nuclear deal, there will still be plenty of volatility to allow for soaring profits. Uh, to your question about foreign policy and normalization and things of that nature, there are certainly plenty of threats in the region. You know, just the volatility, even if there may be some kind of deal done with Iran, there is volatility all around the region, and each one of these countries uh, believes they've got to protect their citizens, and, and the things that we can bring to them 
help in that regard. Yes, dear investors. Other countries are really excited about getting the weapons they'll need to protect themselves from us. So, so we think about peace the same way a farmer thinks about drought or the way Indiana Governor Pence thinks about a loving gay couple happily sitting at a cafe and enjoying each other's company. It is the worst case scenario. Peace is like finding out you have been inhabited by an alien Barbie baby eating out your insides. And we see a lot of expanding demand for international growth. Don't worry, there's plenty of instability and ongoing war. We're like the mafia. We sell protection to people, and if they aren't afraid enough to want it, we make them afraid enough. <laughs> Look, last year, Lockheed spent at least $14 million in lobbying and influencing our government. And what do you think they're whispering in the ruling elite's ears? Give peace a chance? No, no, no. They're saying, give me that sweet, sweet instability with truffle oil on top. They're no better than black market organ smugglers, cutting out the livers and hearts of unsuspecting victims. But because we idealize and glamorize immense wealth, the CEO of Lockheed Martin is worshipped, even as she relishes in instability around the world. But she did beat the pants off Beyonce, all right, like a beast. You know, one of the things that I found fascinating living in uh, Germany for a year back in the, in the mid-80s, 86, 87, was uh, traveling around. We lived in a little town in the middle of nowhere. It was called Stadtsteinach, and it was a little town of maybe, I don't know, 25,000 people or something like that. And, and uh, the nearest town, it, it might have even been half that size. And the nearest big town, which was still a little tiny town, was Kumbach. And, uh, but we were in what was called Kreis Kumbach. In other words, County Kumbach or Region Kumbach. Because Kumbach was where the castle was. It's also where the best beer in the world is brewed. But uh, Kumbach or beer. But the castle was there. And I, I learned some of the history of the region. And it was fascinating. There was a castle in Kumbach. There was a castle in Bayreuth. There was a castle in, um, uh, what were some of the other towns? There was, there was an old, uh, castle ruin right in Stadtsteinach, although it had not been occupied since around the year 1000. It was called, uh, uh, I forget what it was called. Anyway, uh, there was a castle there uh, as well. But what it used to happen is the kings wanted to get the serfs, the peons, wanted to get them to help build a bigger castle. Right? I mean, the king's already rich. He's already got the castle. But he wants a bigger castle, a fancier castle. The castle in Kumbag is one hell of a fancy castle. Uh, the, the castle in Bayreuth, eh, not so much. Well, it's not, it's not, it's pretty impressive too. So what would the king do? Well, the castle, the, the king of Kumbach and the king of, of, uh, of, uh, Kumbach would kind of in back channels get together and say, hey, let's have a war with each other. But not quite. Just enough to scare the peasants. So they will build a larger castle so that they, if they think that one of us is going to invade the other, that everybody, that the castle will be big enough that the entire town's population can hide inside its walls. And so by having these low-level wars, for hundreds of years in some cases, just constant low-level warfare, what this did is it created an environment where the serfs were willing 
to give some of their food and some of their crops and to show up for a couple of months every year and do construction work, all for free to the local lord or the local king. This is the exact same thing that's happening. Whether it was the Vietnam War, whether it was Bush line, you know, and LBJ line us into the Vietnam War, George W. Bush line us into the Iraq War, identify an enemy, freak out about them, and and the citizens will give you their stuff, including the bodies of their children. Right, to go fight that, you know, what, we've lost, what, four, five thousand U.S. soldiers so far as a result of George W. Bush's decision to lie us into a war in Iraq? Keep the wars going, and you can stay rich. And, and in fact, you know, there's a, a piece of this, arguably, in the news, I don't know what I did with it, but that that increasingly, as oh, it, it, this was a New York Times piece today. It was a New York Times piece. I can't find it, but I can tell you from memory. The New York Times they were talking about how this this war that is going on in the Middle East right now in Yemen and Libya and and Iraq and and uh, Syria, you know, the, just the region. That regional war is increasingly being fought as a proxy war between large Sunni superpowers, Saudi Arabia mainly, and in a more minor way, Qatar, UAE, you know, whatnot, and the Shia Iran. Now, the, the thing that the New York Times was commenting about today is that this has been a bonanza for U.S. weapon makers, because we supply Saudi Arabia with their military, and they have the third largest military budget in the world, which means they're buying a hell of a lot of hardware from the United States. Our fancy jets, our fancy weapon systems, our fancy missiles, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And, you know, once again, war as an excuse to spy on you, war as an excuse to oppress you, war as an excuse not to rebuild our infrastructure, war as an excuse not, you know, hey, Bush spent $2 trillion. Probably when all is said and done, it'll be $6 trillion in Iraq and Afghanistan. Money that could have put every student in America, including every minority student who, who you know, every, every student who, who is capable and wants to go to college, through college for free. Our entire national tuition bill for public colleges every year in the United States is $61 billion. A trillion is a thousand billion. We, we're spending $6 trillion on these wars. We can put everybody to school for free. We can give everybody affordable housing. We've got all these houses in foreclosure. Why don't we do what FDR did? Buy them up and then sell them out, you know, sell them back to people. I mean, there's so many things that we could do that would make this country a better place that we're not doing because of the power of wealth. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. My wealth comes to me.
As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com to shop at just one of the major companies with the insatiable profit incentive to help perpetuate the destructive paradigm of overconsumption and exploitative capitalism. Better yet, go ahead and click through to the Amazon site that serves your country just once and then bookmark it to use every time you shop, which should be as rarely as possible. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumerism altogether or at least consuming in a subversive way. They just did a study on the recent upgrading or sending of more forces into Iraq of 89 pundits who were interviewed on the major networks. One was sort of against it. And this, the way that the insidious relationship in general, Electric is a defense contractor and they own, you know, massive numbers of, of radios, of uh, television stations. They hire ex-military who work for defense contractors to essentially call for an expansion of the wars in the Middle East, which makes them rich. I mean, war is a business. War is a business. And that's why stocks of these defense corporations have increased 20-fold since 9-11. I was invited uh, a few weeks ago to a white upper middle class church in New Jersey. Somebody got the cute idea that it would be a good idea to invite me for Peace and Justice Sunday. It was a bad idea. And um, I go, I, they started walking out when I said, our militarized drones, our attack aircraft, our missiles, and our heavy artillery have decapitated far more people, including children, than ISIS. When you spend over a decade brutalizing people, they become brutal. And I quoted the example from a survivor of the Sobibor death camp, who when they got axes and knives and carried out the uprising, he talks about going into an office and confronting a German with a knife and going, this is for my mother, this is for my father, this is for my sister, this is for my brother. The act itself, out of context, looks barbaric. But when you understand what went on in that death camp, it makes perfect sense. And the idea that the very violence that has created the pathology in front of us is the solution is, and I spent seven years in the Middle East, is a failure completely to understand who we are and what we've done. Not only as white Americans in America, but as white Americans on the outer reaches of empire. Now when empires go down, they all go down the same way. They expand, as the Roman Empire did, Gibbon writes about it, beyond their capacity to sustain themselves. They are hollowed out from the inside. And 
get in a car and drive across this country in city after city after city. It's a wreck. Our infrastructure is collapsing. We don't make anything except weapons. We, of course, 70% of the world's weapons, which we then spread out all over the globe like candy. The candy man. The candy man can. Our terrorist group hit list only gets bigger. Think about that. Why is that? Why is the group that we are going after only getting larger and larger? If only, if only we had an insider. Or we could listen to General Wesley Clark, who's worked with a lot of these gentlemen and was retired by the time of 9-11, but wouldn't you know, he has a lot of inside information, and I want you to take a listen to that right now. I couldn't stay away from Mother Army. I went back there to see Don Rumsfeld. I'd worked for him as a White House fellow in the 1970s. All this is in the book. I went downstairs. I was leaving the Pentagon, and an officer from the Joint Staff called me into his office and said, I, I want you to know, he said, sir, we're going to attack Iraq. And I said, why? He said, we don't know. He said, uh, I said, well, did they tie Saddam to 9-11? He said, uh, no. He said, but um, I guess it's they don't know what to do about terrorism. And so uh, the, it, they, they think, but they can attack states and they want to look strong. And so I guess they think if they take down a state, it will intimidate the terrorists. And, you know, it's like that old saying he said, if the only two you have is a hammer, then every problem has to be a nail. Well, I walked out of there pretty upset, and then um, we attacked Afghanistan. I was pretty happy about that. We should have. And then I came back to the Pentagon about six weeks later. I saw the same officer. I said, why, uh, why haven't we attacked Iraq? We still going to attack Iraq? He said, oh, sir. He says, it's worse than that. He said, um, he pulled up a piece of paper off his desk. He said, I just got this memo from the Secretary of Defense's office. It says we're going to attack and destroy the governments in, in seven countries in five years. We're going to start with Iraq, and then we're going to move to Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and Iran. I said, seven countries in five years. I said, is that a classified memo? He said, yes, sir. I said, well, don't show it to me. He was about to show it to me. He said, because I want to talk about it. These people took control of the policy in the United States. And I realized then it came back to me. A 1991 meeting I had with Paul Wolfowitz. I said to Paul, I said, and this is 1991, I said, Mr. Secretary, you must be pretty happy with the performance of the troops in, in Desert Storm. And he said, uh, well, yeah, he said, but, but not really, he said, because the truth is we should have gotten rid of Saddam Hussein, and we didn't. And this was just after the Shia uprising in, the, in March of 91, which we had provoked, and then we kept our troops on the sidelines and didn't intervene. He said, but one thing we did learn, he said, we learned that we can use our military in the region, in the Middle East, and the Soviets won't stop us. He said, and we've got about five or ten years 
to clean up those old Soviet client regimes, Syria, Iran, Iraq, before the next great superpower comes on to challenge us. And it was like, you know, I'm coming out of the Mojave Desert. I've been training troops. I haven't been thinking geostrategy for some time. And suddenly, a guy just sort of shoves this nugget at you. Well, you remember it. It was a pretty stunning thing. You mean the purpose of the military is to, to, to start wars and change governments? It's not to sort of deter conflict? We're going to invade countries? And, I, I, you know, my mind was spinning. And uh, I put that aside. It was like a nugget that you hold on to. This country was taken over by a group of people with a policy coup. Wolfowitz and Cheney and Rumsfeld and you could name a half dozen other collaborators from the Project for a New American Century. They wanted us to destabilize the Middle East, turn it upside down, make it under our control. It went back to those comments in 1991. Now, did anybody ever tell you that? Was there a national dialogue on this? Did senators and congressmen stand up and denounce this plan? Was there a full-fledged American debate on it? Absolutely not. And there still isn't. That's General Wesley Clark. He was retired by the time 2001 had occurred, but as you heard him say, he met with Paul Wolfowitz in 2000, uh, excuse me, in 1991 saying that we should have got Saddam Hussein out of there. But what we did learn is that we can do whatever we want and the former Soviet Republic will do nothing. We can expand our power and where we need to hit would be Syria, Iran, and Iraq. We're still scared of the Russians. The commies, repeats, capitalism, good. Socialism, bad. Red, bad. Red, White and blue? Good. In an effort to secure our future and safety, we, the people of the United States, are drastically undermining ourselves, creating enemies and creating inequality, and we're letting people do these things in our name every day. It's time for us to get honest. What are the reasons that we're fighting over there, other than fear? Is it global positioning, a foothold everywhere in the, in the world? That would explain why in Bahrain, where they treat their people in, in, in unimaginable ways, and it never, ever, ever reaches our, our media. We happen to have our Navy Fifth Fleet. as the largest Navy fleet in the world. Maybe it's money to be made. Is it about oil? I don't know. Maybe it's money in arms exports. And the almost $70 billion to Saudi Arabia alone in the last year. Which, by the way, may be arming or training some of these terrorists anyway. Could it be for our defense investments? The revolving door, Dick Cheney, who's actually a high executive for Halliburton, and is today saying, not only was Iraq a great idea, but how, why have we waited so long to go into Syria? And to go back, and why did we pull our troops out in the first place? ProjectCensored.com lists very many, about 10% in 2006, that had defense investments. When we go to war, these representatives, these congresspeople, uh, representatives and senators, make money. Here's just a couple names for you. John Kerry, 
Jane Harmon, Jay Rockefeller, West Virginia. Funny thing, those are all Democrats. John Kerry, in 2006, had upwards of $38 million invested in defense contracts. Now he's our Secretary of State, the same person who is in charge to make sure that we are not abusing our name and that we are trying to keep diplomatic uh, relationships with countries all over the world is the same guy who makes a ton of money when we go to war with one of them. Or maybe it's indirect investments in Wall Street that also turn around and invest in defense contractors. The Red Scare is very much alive. It is very real. Here's Richard Wolf on his show last week. Economic update. They had certain advantages in fighting socialism. First, that socialism arrived in countries that were much, much poorer than where capitalism had been for 200 years. This little detail was kind of brushed under the rug. And instead, what capitalists did was to juxtapose the relatively high standard of living of working people in North America, Western Europe, and Japan, on the one hand, against the poverty of Russians and Chinese on the other. This wasn't quite fair, since socialism hadn't had 200 years to develop the country, so you could compare what 200 years of socialism might have done in Russia and China against what 200 years of capitalism had in fact done in Western Europe, North America, and Japan, but it was an effective counterattack. The second way capitalism counterattacked was by threatening the socialists in Russia and China with nuclear and military annihilation. The United States, but also the Western Europeans, and to some degree the Japanese, uh, circled Russia and then China with military bases, pointed missiles at them, terrified them, and that was a clever strategy because it forced Russia and China, poor countries whose major goal was to develop their economies and especially to become showcases of what so socialism could do, they couldn't devote the resources um, minimum as they were to that because they had to devote enormous amounts of their resources to military parity with the West that was threatening them. So let's see if we got that straight. Russia has a cold war with the United States. It cannot apply enough money and energy and resources into advancing its economy, its infrastructure, its standard of living for its people. Does not have 200 years head start like capitalism in the United States has, plus a low level of democratic activity ends with the fall of the USSR and a successful demonization of communism and socialism. A very successful demonization of communism and socialism. And today Russia is afraid of NATO countries and those who prefer to do business with the West. Now when we think about Ukraine, and we think about leaked conversations with ambassadors who are blatantly and quite clearly helping to choose the next government of Ukraine. We are poking Russia with a stick. We are flirting with the buffer zone. Our foreign policy in the United States is shameless. Absolutely shameless. And whether or not you agree with the fight with ISIS, whether you, are not, uh, you agree with our our presence in the Middle East at all, or the way that we endorse Israel and condemn Palestine, 
All these things are connected. And regardless of what you believe, we have a government that is going to do it whether you like it or not. They're going to do it as long as we stand by and don't say anything about it. Is this the government that we are going to allow to happen? Is this the government that we are going to hand down to our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren? That's a question that we all need to think about long and hard. show is sponsored by Audible, where you can get hundreds of thousands of audiobooks, radio shows, audio versions of periodicals, and more. You can get a free audiobook of your choice by going to audiblepodcast.com slash best, which you can also find linked up on my website. If you'd like to learn more about the secret inside story of America's new forever war on terror, then you may want to check out Jeremy Scahill's book, Dirty Wars, The World is a Battlefield. It is widely thought of as one of the most authoritative explanations of the causes and consequences of America's post-9-11 military excursions. And it's available on Audible and can be yours for free by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash best. There is a new, new development in the very dynamic world of drone warfare (laughs) (laughs) expanding it's an expanding world yeah growing uh, market that's the words that i was going to use really yeah yeah defense manufacturers so-called defense contractors weapons manufacturers in the united states are convinced rightly that the drone market is a that's a good market you want to be in that market it's a growth market People people love using drones to uh, murder other people. You know what I love is when my capitalism and my imperialism really meet. Yeah. And harmonize together. Yeah. I mean, that is that is the military industrial complex in a nutshell. Yeah. And uh, so two, two great tastes that taste great together. <laughs> yeah. So uh, as of uh, as of this week, as of recording, the United States government has announced a new policy allowing the export of armed drones to U.S. to some U.S. allies. I'm not sure if it's if there's a specific sort of like list that you have to be on um, or that that has been created. As of right now, the U.S. has allegedly only sold armed drones to Britain. Now, presumably, like Italy, for instance, has been wanting to get its hands on some of that sweet, sweet armed drone action. (laughs) They have surveillance drones, but they want missiles on that. And why wouldn't you? Yeah. If you're surveilling, you may as well be ready for some drops of missiles. Right. I'm watching somebody. I want to shoot them. Yeah, might want to bob them. Yeah, so, you know, the the behind the scenes of this... I wasn't privy to any of these conversations, but my, my strong suspicion is that these huge defense contractors, many of whom are just riddled with with former uh, government employees, former Pentagon people, military people, who you know will either cer- uh, cycle back into government, maybe if there's a, the next time there's a Republican administration, you know, th- obviously these 
huge weapons manufacturers are very, very closely tied to the Pentagon. And so my, my, you know, basically what almost certainly happened here was those, those people said, look, we need to sell drones to some of these countries because if it's not us, it's going to be China or possibly Israel because Israel also uh, has a armed drone manufacturing industry. But so they said, you know, if it's going to happen, it may as well be us. And, you know, to, to a certain extent, <laughs> yeah, to a certain extent, it's, it's, you know, maybe better to have a policy on this than, than to not have one. But what is sort of guiding this policy right now is that manufacturers can only export to countries who promise not to use the equipment illegally. I'm not joking. That's like... You you have to sign a contract. <laughs> I imagine like somebody just like trying to hand something over and being like, "Are you are you are you are you, are you, you promise? Okay, I, you really promise?" Yeah, yeah. So part of this part of these export rules are that um, countries who who buy this material have to promise to not use it to surveil domestic populations unlawfully, <laughs> engage in extrajudicial killings. And oh my lord! You know you don't have to be uh, a national security specialist to know that once you give somebody a weapons platform, you have very little say in how they use it. Yeah, and uh, no reason to believe that they won't be used extrajudiciously based on precedent, right? Yeah, because the United States has led that charge. Yeah, do as I say, not as I do. Yeah, don't use these to. Surveilled domestic populations. Yeah, and don't make your own kill lists that exist outside of judicial process, which unbelievable is. Uh, I mean, countries are going to violate the laws of war regardless of of what the United States does in many cases. But when it comes to actually creating some kind of international framework for how drones are going to be used. The United States has done just a, a very significant amount of harm in terms of the way that that the U.S. government has used drones since since 2011. And what we know about drones is that they lower the threshold for countries to engage in lethal force, right? So, uh, so the United States might not be willing to send, you know, a helicopter with a pilot and a gunner or whoever else into an area in tribal Pakistan because you don't want that those uh, pilots to die. You know, it might be seen as a very clear breach of sovereignty, but the U.S. is willing to send a drone to go to go kill somebody in uh, in Yemen or in Pakistan. You know, if you if you don't want to have a full on special ops mission, you can send a drone. And because it makes it easier to use lethal force, that makes it more likely that lethal force uh, will be used unlawfully or uh, at the expense of other, you know, less <laughs> less lethal means, either capture or surveillance or something. And it, it creates a potential where you could have massive escalation, escalation that comes from conflicts that were started because the threshold for starting conflicts is so much lower when you use drones. Uh -huh. Wow, that, that is really bad. Yeah. And, that is and, bad news. And human rights groups have been warning about drone prolifer proliferation for 
the I mean the better part of a decade, uh-huh. and they're saying, look, this toothpaste is out of the tube, and there's no putting it back in, and so we need to figure out what are the what are going to be the international norms, and and how are we going to in, uh, enforce them, and the U.S. has stuck its head in the sand and say, you know, these are our toys, we've got them, nobody else has them, and now that's just clearly not going to be the case. <laughs> from today forward, basically. What does that world look like? It looks like a world populated densely by drones. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll stay up on, uh, on, on what that growth market starts to look oh like. God. And, uh, the phrase growth market just makes me want to hurl. Yeah, yeah, especially when you're talking about weapons. It's, yeah. I mean, weapons and surveillance tools and sometimes both together. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's really that's, the worst. That's, yeah. The worst. Those are markets we should all be thinking about shrinking, not growing. Oh, my God. So in January, there were, I believe, a couple of drone strikes to a uh, Al Qaeda compound in Pakistan. It the U.S. drone strike killed an American, a guy named Warren Weinstein, who was a development expert. I don't know what that means, frankly, and an Italian aid worker, Giovanni Loporto. They were both hostages. Apparently, the CIA, even though it had this compound under surveillance for an extensive period of time. I mean, I think they were um, watching this compound for about a month. At no time, according to the story, did the U.S. spy agency detect the presence of two hostages or any other civilians inside the compound, which they thought was being used by al-Qaeda militants. The U.S. intelligence agencies now believe al-Qaeda took extraordinary measures to keep the hostages inside and out of sight. This is relevant because, remember now, we have a program where we have been told we don't ever kill non-terrorists because we can see who we're killing and uh, or non-combatants and almost definitionally if they're killed they're combatants <laughs> uh this sort of seems to put that um assessment or I should say proclamation in doubt along with these two hostages the strike killed the al-Qaeda leader, Ahmed Farouk, who happened to be another American citizen. Now, you recall that supposedly 
there is an entirely another system wherein you can kill an American citizen with a drone strike or any other, uh, I guess, assassination um, mechanism, but there has to go through an entire process. According to the CIA, the intelligence analysts did not know that that senior al-Qaeda leader that they had targeted was in fact that guy, Ahmed Farouk. And then apparently, later in the month, they killed another American citizen. The American-born al-Qaeda spokesman Adam Gadon. In January, in the same place at a different time, supposedly the CIA did not know that either one of them was that guy that they that was Gadon. They didn't know Gadon was Gadon, and they didn't know that Farouk was Farouk. Uh, it really makes you question whether or not they have either the intelligence capacity to really know who they're killing at any given time or whether or not they're telling the truth now. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, asking drone pilots to please refuse to fly. Drones are deadly. According to estimates from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, about 6,000 people have been killed by U.S. drones in Pakistan, Yemen, Afghanistan, Somalia, Iraq, and Libya. And of that 6,000, 230 are estimated to be children. As the commander-in-chief seems unwilling to curb the use of drones, military veterans have teamed up with the organization No Drones to appeal directly to pilots who fly them. Graphic 15-second ads depicting the drone operation's video screen, an explosion, civilians searching through rubble after the drone attack, and images of children killed were produced and paid for by NoDrones.com and members of Veterans for Peace Sacramento. The voiceover says, Drone pilots, please refuse to fly. Nick Modern, coordinator of No Drones, explained the purpose of the ads and why they are calling for help to continue airing them. Quote, We produce this spot to make the point as powerfully as possible that drone killing is horrifying, illegal, and immoral. The president and the Congress refuse to respect law and morality and stop U.S. drone attacks. So we are asking the people who bear the burden of doing the actual killing to put a stop to it. Unquote. You can support the No Drones effort by visiting their website, no, that's K-N-O-W, drones.com, and donating and or sharing the ads on your networks. Their campaign is being distributed to local cable companies and networks through coordination with activist social justice ad agency Information in the Public Interest. So a $25 donation can buy a spot on CNN and as little as $50 a spot on MSNBC. It's time the public engage with this issue as drones 
drone killings are done in our name, by our government, with our tax dollars, if more veterans and enlisted military can be encouraged to speak out and be supported as they do, drawing in people across political parties and affiliations will be easier and could help make this a campaign issue next year. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If stopping drone killings matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the No Drones ad campaign via social media so that others in your network can support their efforts too. Activism. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage? We are told by conservatives that if we go into Iran, it'll be really easy. The same exact thing they told us about Iraq, of course. Uh, oh, it'll take uh, several weeks, not several months. Uh, Don Rumsfeld told us there's no way the Iraq war is going to take longer than six months. We're still listening to these assholes? Anyway, Tom Cotton now came out and said about if we do bombings of Iran, don't worry, it'll be so simple. It won't even take weeks. It'll just take several days. Okay, now Vox is a great report. Uh, highlighting from Zach uh, Bosham uh, what actual defense analysts believe. Okay, so let me quote from that report. The first issue is that the U.S. would need to destroy Iran's air defenses, including fighters and surface-to-air missiles, in order to ensure the bombs hit targets and to prevent Iran from doing serious damage in response. According to Robert Farley, a professor at the University of Kentucky and an expert on air power, this would involve long-range bombers, drones, electronic warfare, land-based fighter bombers, carrier aircraft, and submarine-launched cruise missiles. That doesn't sound like an operation you could do in a couple of days. And remember, what if the Iranians fight back? Given that we're bombing the living crap out of their country, my guess is that they would fight back. And what if they shoot down one of our planes? I know we think we rule the skies and we're invincible, and no one can ever shoot down anything we've got up in the sky. And luckily, we've been pretty good at it. But as you saw with Black Hawk down in Somalia, we're not perfect. And if they shoot down one of our planes, you think the Republicans aren't going to immediately demand all-out, endless war against Iran? You think they're going to just let them shoot down one of our planes, kill our soldiers? And they're going to be like, oh, no, that's okay. We started bombing them first. Let's just keep it to a several-day operation. Let's not broaden the war. That's a joke. Of course they would broaden the war. And even if we stuck to their plan, according to the analysts, that war would be much broader than they're saying. There's no such thing as oh, a little bomb, a smattering of bombs in Iran. All right, uh, continuum. Other issues with this so-called plan. But in order to destroy the centrifuge production facilities, the U.S. would have to find them, which would likely prove difficult. These facilities are not under IAEA safeguards, and identifying and locating them would require good intelligence and involve significant uncertainty. Sites that have been identified or ones that were known in the past have typically been small, easily concealed from reconnaissance satellites, and located in densely populated urban areas. Reardon writes, failure to destroy these sites would allow the Iranians to rebuild their enrichment program because the machines could be manufactured relatively quickly. 
So when they tell you, oh, we know where they are, we'll just drop a couple of bombs and we're done with it. That's not true. There's the big uh, plants, by the way, buried underground. We think we might be able to get them with bunker busters, but we're not sure. There's the smaller production facilities that we don't have good intelligence on. So it is not an easy project. They're lying to you just like they did with Iraq to try to trick you into a long, endless war. More tricks. They explain here, Anthony Kordsman and Abdullah Tukan, who are... Uh, renowned experts uh, in in um, these areas say, depending on the forces allocated and, dura- and duration of airstrikes, it is unlikely that an air campaign alone could terminate Iran's program. Oh, great, you might need ground troops. That worked out really well in Iraq, right? Then, a blue ribbon panel at the Wilson Center, after reviewing the military studies on the issue, concluded that even extended military strikes were carried out to near, if they were carried out to near perfection, the best case scenario is still only a four-year delay in Iran's progress towards a nuclear weapon. So you won't even accomplish your mission. All you'll do is delay it, they'll rebuild it, and this time they know we're coming, so they'll make it even more secret, because last time they didn't build a nuke and we bombed them anyway, right? Because right now they don't have a nuke, and we'd be bombing them when they don't have it. So next time, they're going to be like, well, apparently you can't get a deal with the Americans. We were trying to get a peace deal, and they bombed the living crap out of us. So this time, let's build it in secret, and we can do it in four years. Then they will have a nuke, unless you take over all of Iran, occupy them for God knows how long, to make sure they shut down every plant in the country. You really want to do that? See, they don't want to tell you that, because then you're not going to be in favor of the Iran war. And they want to push you into that war by lying to you. Okay. Furthermore, to fulfill the stated objective of ensuring that Iran never acquires a nuclear bomb, the Wilson Center report finds the U.S. would need to conduct a significantly expanded air and sea war over a prolonged period of time, likely several years. What a joke Tom Cotton and his neoconservative buddies are. It'll just take a couple of days to beat Iran. Iran is significantly larger than Iraq was. They have agents all throughout the Middle East and perhaps all over the world, which Saddam Hussein actually didn't have. He didn't have that kind of capability, right? Iran has a ton of oil money, speaking of which. Iran can use a mix of mines, submarines, submersibles, drones, anti-ship missiles, small craft, and assault forces anywhere in the Gulf region to threaten the flow of oil exports, Cordesman and Tukan write. Any major disruption affects the entire economy of Asia and all world oil prices, regardless of where oil is produced. It can lead to panic and hoarding on a global basis. Now, we view this as the bad news. We're like, oh my God, oil prices could go through the roof. But remember, not everyone who funds the United States Congress views that as bad news. Oil companies view that as terrific news. You see, they don't even have to get Iran's oil. If because of instability in the Middle East, Iran's oil and by extension perhaps even other countries' oil in the region is threatened, oil prices skyrocket. And the oil companies make a fortune. They don't even need Iran's oil. All they need is the instability. And if you think the oil companies aren't funding Republicans in Congress and a lot of Democrats as well, you're not paying attention to American politics. These guys literally get their checks, their campaign contributions, and their independent contributions from oil companies, defense contractors. Yes, there are other companies that also give them money, giant banks. But those two are in the top ten of donors to American politicians. Now, why do you think American politicians push for more and more war? Because they're going to get more and more donations. 
they're going to lock up their power base, they're going to lock up their elections for as far as the eye can see. And their donors are going to get enormously wealthy as the rest of us fight senseless wars and your sons and daughters die over this scam. One final quote here from Vox. If the U.S. attacked Iran, the international community would surely be appalled and abandon its support for sanctioning and isolating Iran, leaving the country wealthier and a stronger diplomatic position. I need you to understand that. Okay, Right now we're working with six different powers, and we're all united against Iran, including Russia and China. They're saying, you're right, none of us want Iran to get a nuclear weapon. Let's do this peace deal to make sure that they do not get a nuclear weapon. That's the whole point of the deal, right? Now, if we said, oh, yeah, in the middle of the peace negotiations, we're going to bomb them anyway, we would obviously lose the support of Russia, China, and Europe. And then they would lift the sanctions because then we turn into the bad guys. They would allow Iran to sell their oil to them, in which case Iran gets wealthier and stronger and could fight back against us more easily. The whole thing is a booby trap. <laughs> to undermine these peace negotiations by bombing Iran would be a fool's errand if you actually cared about the United States of America and its citizens and our interests. But if you cared about your stock price, well, then it's not a fool's errand. This war would benefit two sets of people, actually three sets. Yes, no question. Oil companies would tremendously profit. Defense contractors would tremendously profit. You know that Halliburton, um, during the Iraq war, their stock price went up fivefold. You think it, that mission was not accomplished? You think the Iraq war was a mess and Bush and Cheney didn't get what they wanted? <laughs> Cheney got a $34 million exit bonus from Halliburton. When he left as the CEO of Halliburton, they handed him a $34 million check. And then he started a war where Halliburton's stock price went up fivefold. No, no, no. You don't understand when Bush landed on the aircraft carrier with the mission accomplished sign. He meant it. He's like, yes, for our donors, the mission is accomplished. And those are the third sets of people who would benefit. The people who get those donations. The incredibly corrupt politicians we have here in America. The whole system is based on corruption. They get campaign donations, and then they do the bidding of those donors. This is not an accident. The whole point is to drive us to war for profit. You've got to change the system. Whether it's Wolfpack, and we believe that's the right answer. You've got to get an amendment to get money out of politics. Otherwise, we're going to be in endless wars. Or you think it's some other organization. For Christ's sake, fight back. If you don't fight back, we'll be in a real war. And that's going to cost a lot more. Wolf-Pack.com, you've got to get money out of politics. If you don't, this corruption never ends, and the wars never end. Hello, Jay. This is V from Western New York. I um, just listened to episode 915. Bravo. Bravo. Uh, the passion is definitely coming back, particularly the um, poem which uh, you ended the show with. 
Um, I, of course, have found a couple of poems that are similar to that, but um, that was a brilliant, brilliant poem. You asked a question at the end of the program, which I seek to answer for you and your guests, or excuse me, and your listeners. Um, you asked why the media does not cover the... Basically, I, I'm truthfully starting to just call them what they are, the lynchings of black women by uh, police officers. The reality is this, and this may sound absolutely crazy to your listeners, but there is a ample amount of evidence if you seek it out to prove this. There has been this effort, I don't know if it's conscious, if it's unconscious, to really separate, actually, I apologize, it is absolutely conscious, but to separate the black male and the black female, at least in the public eye. If you notice on TV, in the radio, uh, on the radio, uh, in media in general, black women are given better spots than black men. They are overrepresented, especially dark black women are overrepresented in the media than dark black men. It is because of this, truthfully, that I believe the media doesn't have an interest in reporting black women being lynched by the police officers because in the grand scheme of everything, the focus needs to be on the brutes, and that is the black men. Black females are seen more positively among white people, of course, as it was pointed out in your show, they are seen as less threatening than black males. And from my own experience, I can tell you, white people like black females a lot better, especially black females who are who lean more towards them, who are more adaptive to their requests. So if the goal of the media is to paint black people in a certain light, you don't want to use black females because they're in good standing, more so than black men. Again, like I said, I know that it sounds crazy, but there is ample evidence to suggest it. Just look at the amount of black females that are on TV, that are in the media, and look at the hues. There is more darker skin than there are lighter skin, but that's for another day. Anyway, I really did thoroughly um, appreciate this show. Uh, I was going to give you an idea for a show, but you know something, I'll um, zip it to you in an email. Please keep up the good work. Hey Jay, this is Alex from Montreal. I'm calling about the Baltimore riots. I hear a lot of people talking about how the protesters in Baltimore shouldn't be rioting. People keep talking about how this is something new and young and how it's some kind of stupid temper tantrum that does nothing but hurt innocent business owners. I've heard people yell about thugs and millennials and looters. Then after they've yelled for a bit, they point to pictures of Dr. King and Freedom Riders and say, that's how you make change. They say something like, today's protesters should remain non-violent like they did during the civil rights movement. But people don't know their history, and that's partially because we've only been taught the PC version of the civil rights movement. In reality, for every MLK, there was a Malcolm X who believed in defending himself. For every freedom rider, there was a rider in Harlem, Birmingham, or Pennsylvania. We only got taught half the history. The civil rights movement was a game of good cop, bad cop with big stakes. 
On the bad cop side of the table, there were black panthers and freedom fighters who scared the shit out of white middle-class Americans. On the other end of the table were church ministers and pacifists who were there to make the white middle classes feel comfortable in, by the more moderate solutions. I respect the legacy of Dr. King very much, but he was not an entire movement. In fact, I don't believe he would have had quite so much of an impact if the establishment hadn't been afraid of people like Stokely Carmichael. These riots in Baltimore are nothing new. The protesters are the same. The needs of the people are the same. There are still MLKs and Malcolm X's running around screaming for change. The only difference between then and now is that the establishment has stopped listening to the Dr. Kings of the world. They're still there, marching somewhere with the 10,000 non-violent protesters there in Baltimore behind the few dozen rioters. Our media just doesn't pay them any attention. And if the establishment doesn't start taking the moderate protesters seriously, the riots will turn into revolts. The revolts will turn into a revolution, and that's just how suppression works. In Wade's voicemail, uh, when he was talking about the riots, he was right. Riots can change things. Rodney King riots changed things. In ancient Rome, it was revolts and riots that led to the grain subsidies for the poor. The first modern welfare program was established in Germany to prevent peasant revolts. The May Day riots helped to advance workers' rights, and now Baltimore is rioting. Maybe it will change something, maybe it won't. I'm not saying riots are a good thing. I'm saying they can be effective when all else fails, and the people aren't given any other real choice. Love the show, Jay. Keep on fighting the good fight. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And of course, thanks to all those who have been uh, calling with the great comments either on Baltimore or on the previous Black Lives Matter episode. Uh, you know, I mean, the conversation is great already, and, and for everyone predicting that there is a Baltimore episode in the works, uh, of course you are right about that. Although news hit today, I'm sure you know already, uh, that as I was producing today's episode, I got the notification that several of the police officers from Baltimore have now been charged with murder. So more breaking news coming out. Uh, you know, frankly, I, I was sort of thinking that the Baltimore episode would be next Tuesday. Uh, and now with, uh, with news coming out, it may get pushed back to Friday to, to make sure that I can encompass as much of what's going on as possible. So that's the update on that. Uh, and then as I mentioned in the previous episode, I have started officially my climate hike fundraiser. I'm working on a project this year where, uh, you know, usually I, uh, I I do some sort of a fundraiser to raise money for climate change each year. This year, I am hiking dozens of miles. It's, I don't know, 40, 50 miles, something like that, averaging between 10 and 15 miles a day for four days. And I am attempting to raise $5,000 as part of that effort. So if you're interested in donating, 
Go to bestofleft.com. There's a giant banner for the climate hike. You can click that. There are more details, of course, uh, on my donation page, so you can see that there. I'm hoping to have this fundraiser done over the course of this month. So it's the 1st of May. I would love to reach my goal by the end of May. With your help, we can get it done. But that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our sad story See you